Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. The U.S. military has been working on a plan to integrate women into combat roles after the Pentagon ordered all military jobs must be open to women. Today we consider whether the plan to fully integrate women will remain in effect under President-elect Trump. He's been critical of women in the military. Here's what he had to say in a 2014 interview with biographer Michael D'Antonio, obtained by MSNBC. It's like bedlam. It is bedlam. It's something that people aren't talking about. But what's going on is bedlam, bringing women in the army. Now, coming up, we'll talk with a reporter from Military.com and and find out more about Trump's pick for Defense Secretary, retired Marine General James Mattis. If confirmed, would Mattis reverse the Pentagon's previous decision to open all combat jobs to women? And we'll also talk to three women veterans from different branches and eras, their views on the plan to fully integrate the U.S. military. We'll also find out what issues matter most to female veterans and if policymakers are paying attention. Are you a veteran? What do you think about women being eligible to serve in the infantry? We want to hear from you, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wmpr.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Now, I wanted to welcome our three guests into the studio. Again, all uh, veterans of the U.S. Armed Forces. I'll begin with Emily Lugo. She's a veteran of the U.S. Marine Corps. Welcome to the show, Emily. Hi, thank you for having me. Also, Lisa Ducharme, a retiree from the U.S. Air Force. Lisa, nice to meet you today. Nice to meet you. Thank you. And uh, Deborah Denhart, who is also a veteran of the U.S. Air Force. Welcome to the show, Deborah. Thank you so much. I think it's always important to, to learn a little bit about people when they come on the show. So I'll start with you, Emily. I, I mentioned you're a veteran of the U.S. Marine Corps. What um, encouraged you to join the service? Well, when I was in high school, they tried to recruit me, but I was adamant on going to college, which I did, but I did very poorly. So I just figured the Marine Corps would be the next step so I could, you know, progress. Now, why the Marine Corps? Well, they were the first ones that you know, tried to contact me, and I kind of liked what they had to offer, and I didn't really look at any other services, so I stuck with them. Now, did you come from a family of service members? No, I am first generation. And what was the response to your, when your family heard that you were going to join the Marines? Uh, they were all nervous, <laughs> but they were very supportive of it. So, And um, tell me about when you joined the Marine Corps and how long you served. I joined January 2012, and I served for four years, and I just um, got out January 2016. All right. And then I'll turn uh, to Lisa, Lisa Ducharme, again, uh, retired from the U.S. Air Force. So uh, tell me about uh, when you entered the service and, and what prompted you to do so. Oh, it was my sister. Oh, heaven forbid. So I am a military brat. So my father retired after 33 years. And my sister, in her infinite wisdom, said, let's go into the Air Force under the buddy system which back then meant that you could go with somebody all the way to training and you didn't have to be separated. My sister, however, did not make it into the Air Force. (laughs) The recruiter called my father to say, congratulations, Lisa made it in before Lisa had the chance to say, no, that's okay, I changed my mind. (laughs) 
<laughs> Sister can't go, I can't go. So I joined. So I joined back in 1986. And how long were you in the Air Force? Um, I actually retired in December of 2006. And this month, um, I've actually been retired 10 years. Well, first, congratulations. Thank you. Um, so tell me, you joined the military in the mid-'80s, obviously a different climate than today. <laughs> uh, what was it like for you to have to go to boot camp without your sister? Oh, yeah, it was, it was not fun. Um, however, being military, I already had the yes, sir, yes, ma'am, no, sir, no, ma'am, all the way down pat. So that was never an issue. Um, and it was, it was a time where I actually had big units, which was very surprised because we had about 8% women in the military during that time. So because I already had the military structure, I actually ended up being a little bit in charge because I also had Army ROTC under my belt. So for me, that was not an issue. That was a piece of cake because, you know, Dad said they're going to break you down to build you up. Just remember that through boot camp. So you went to ROTC, so you were on the officer. Um, no, I actually went through high school ROTC. Oh, okay. Not, mm-hmm. I never did, went to college. In fact, I almost got kicked out of the Air Force, but my first assignment was Clark Air Base, Philippines. But because my reading level was be thir- below third grade, they actually uh, were processing me for discharge um, when I was about seven months into my assignment, but because I came out as an honor graduate and because I was in the Philippines, they decided to stop the discharge. Otherwise, I would not have made it through a year in the military. And tell me your specialty or the job that you were assigned. I did personnel, which made it so much easier Um, For anybody who's ever done personnel, we know a whole lot more about how to find the military resources, and I am truly all about resources. So for me, that was to my biggest advantage. I learned the tricks in the trades and how to read the laws and how to understand the rules and regulations. And then I wanted to turn to our uh, Deborah Denhart, also a U.S. Air Force veteran. Uh, Welcome again to the show, and and how did you decide you were going to join the military? You know, actually, I came from a military family. My father actually was in the military for 25 years, so I was very familiar with the military. And we were also at Clark Air Base when I was in third grade in the Philippines. So it was a kind of a generational, you know, in the family, kind of grew up in the in the military. So and my dad really encouraged me to actually go in, and, which I think is kind of rare. Most fathers probably would not encourage their children to join the Air Force, you know, unless they know exactly what to expect. So... So I did join the Air Force, and I was a medical service specialist, a nationally certified EMT, and I uh, served for nine years and was also involved in the Persian Gulf War. So, yeah, it was a very exciting time, you know, and I would definitely do it again. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, we're speaking to three women veterans uh, living here in Connecticut. We want to talk to them about uh, their role um, in the service and also what it's been like uh, in the civilian world after retiring or separating from the military. Now, if you're a female veteran, we'd like to hear from you, too, 860-275-7266. And we also want to talk a little bit about um, a policy change that we saw under um, President Obama's administration, this idea, um, this policy change to open all combat jobs to women. I wanted to get your um, opinion of when that happened and what did you think about it? I'll start with you, Deborah. You know, I, I, I think it's a great idea to have it, everything open to women. I don't think there should be a limitation. Um, I really like what the first four-star general female said, Dunwoody. Uh, general Dunwoody said in her closing speech of 38 years in service as a woman general, 
I've had the honor to serve with many of the 250,000 women who have deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan on battlefields where there are no clear lines, battlefields where every man and woman had to be a rifleman first. And today, women are in combat. That is just a reality. Thousands of women have been decorated for valor and 146 have given their lives. Today, what was once a band of brothers has truly become a band of brothers and sisters. So I'm in support of that. You, you referenced something. So even though this change happened uh, just uh, last year to open all combat jobs, more than 300,000 women in these last uh, in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars were deployed into combat zones. So they may not have had the official um, title of being an in infantry, but they were in combat zones. Absolutely. So to say anything less, I think, is, to, is a disgrace to those women. And we should honor them for their service and who died for us regardless of gender. Lisa, your thoughts? Oh, mine are so strong. Um, <laughs> I obviously believe that women should be in combat. We have been, like, you, like, like Debbie said, we've actually been in combat since the Civil War. We have lost women in combat ever since the Civil War. So the one thing that's really important for people to understand is there is a wide variety of things that had to take place before President Obama said yes we will allow women to step in. It wasn't just an overnight decision. It has probably been happening since even before I came into the military because I'm quite confident the conversation comes up during every war and every conflict. I personally am always perplexed when they say women aren't in combat mm -hmm. because not only is it a disservice to say you didn't do it fighting combat, but there's a variety of different benefits and a variety of different things that women in combat will be entitled to that currently they are not because they are not in combat. We had women during Vietnam who were in combat. They were injured during combat, and they did not receive the proper help from the VA because women weren't in combat, and they weren't injured in combat. So when you talk about women have been in combat, uh, for people who are, have not uh, served in the military, may not understand the different um, the jobs that, that are in each branch, um, give me some examples of the particular um, specialties where women have been in combat zones. Well, the biggest is, and, the, and probably the most number of women have been nurses. Um, they have been on the front line. But you also have your personnel, which are your basic people who did the administrative, your people who did the casualty. Those folks have also been on the front line. Uh, during, the, um, during the Civil War, you actually had Cathaway Williams, who turned her name to William Cathaway, who was actually um, in the war for two years before they recognized her. And she was in the uh, 38th U.S. Infantry from 1866 to 1868. Could you imagine if they credited women for com in combat roles in whatever role they were in, whether they've been on whether they've been on the helicopters, whether they've been in the planes, whether they've had boots on the ground, regardless where we would be today if they actually opened every single career field? It is true that there are some career fields that have not been open to women until last year, and those are the ones that they consider the direct combat folks, the ones who actually go to the front line with the face-to-face -face fighting. Um, however, we've been doing that for centuries, so let's not stop. And we can't forget uh, this past year, two women, including a Connecticut native, um, graduated from the Army Rangers School, uh, the Special Forces. Yes, they did. And I am telling you, that is a hard enough place to graduate when you're a man, let alone a woman.
<laughs> I'll turn to, before we go to break, I'll turn to Emily Lugo because you're the Marine in the room, another <laughs> uh, branch that's known uh, for their infantry and also the fact that this is a branch that um, of all of the branches when this rule change first started in 2013 and then um, instituted last year uh, by Defense Secretary Carter, um, the, the Marines have been a little bit more hesitant to, yes. to take this on. Tell me what your thoughts are. I'm indifferent about the policy. I was in Afghanistan and I, you know, in a combat zone and I was, you know, um, how do you say it? Uh, you know, I was checking the vehicles for bombs and I was um, walking with the men to make sure they weren't going to do anything. And I had my rifle and I did things that would be considered combat. So with the policy, it doesn't, I feel like it doesn't really change anything because I was doing things that would be considered combat. I wasn't on the front lines, but I was in a combat zone and, you know, I rate things that combat veterans do, but I wasn't actually in combat. When you were um, going through boot camp, um, were you was were people receptive to you uh, as a woman? No, not at all. Mm-hmm. So what was that like? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, well, boot camp was hard and it was stressful and I cried at night and I wanted to go back home. But, you know, I... I, it made me who I am today, and I wouldn't change that. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're speaking to three women veterans um, from different eras. So we have Emily Lugo, a U.S. Marine Corps veteran who served in Afghanistan. Also, Deborah Denhart and Lisa Ducharme, uh, Air Force uh, veterans uh, who served in, in different eras. We want to uh, also ask you for your phone calls if you want to join the conversation about uh, the changing face of the military. That's 860-275-7266. We'll have more after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Today we're looking at how the military has changed over the years, specifically just last year when uh, the Defense Secretary Ash Carter ordered that all combat jobs be open to women. And this doesn't mean that all women are going to be in infantry. They are now ha- they still have to qualify, but it has been an interesting uh, change in policy, and we've been seeing it um, come into effect with uh, two uh, women uh, that became uh, Army Rangers just last year, more becoming uh, in Ranger School. Now, in studio with me are three women from Connecticut who have served in the U.S. Armed Forces, Emily Lugo, a U.S. U.S. Marine Corps veteran, uh, Lisa Ducharme, a U.S. Air Force retiree, and Deborah Denhart, a U.S. Air Force re- veteran as well. Now, we want to hear from you, too. Um, what do you think about that, that rule change, uh, allowing women who qualified to become part of official infantry? The number 860-275-7266. I wanted to turn back to Deborah. You said something interesting. Um, you, were, you came from a, a military family, and your father actually encouraged you to join the service. You said um, that's not something that a lot of fathers do. So, um, Give me a little bit more background on, um, you know, your experience when you went into boot camp and how you've seen it change because you've been in the, in the you were in the Air Force for, what, more than 20 years? Actually, nine years. Nine years. That's okay. Well, that must um, be Lisa. I'm getting you confused <laughs> with the other Air Force veteran. No problem. Um, you know, actually, my experience was amazing because I had so much support when I went to um, basic training. And I had friends sending me positive letters. I got letters every day. That was a huge support. I mean, just to make it through um, basic training. Because as soon as I got on the bus to get to 
um, basic training, the, there was an instructor yelling at you when you got on the bus. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I, I think I'm on the wrong bus. Is this, is this the right bus, you know? Um, but he was yelling, you know, at us. And I thought, you know, you can't change your mind. It's not, you know, I wasn't drafted or anything. I mean, I voluntarily <laughs> said I'm going to serve. So that was initially a little bit of a shock, but my dad didn't prepare me for that. I, maybe he kept that part out. Um, but then I went to basic training, had a great group of 60 girls in my flight, and we grew to be friends. It was an amazing experience. It was very hard. I mean, we did a lot of, you know, crawling on the mud, you know, um, shooting M16s, training in that, just very involved. And, um, you know, running our mile and a half and, you know, constantly in wartime preparation of, of activities and people yelling at you. And, you know, the first one of the also for, that happened, something else that happened on the first day, you have to dump out everything on your bed, your bunk, and they take every, anything personal from you. So you have no civilian clothes, nothing, no pictures, anything like that. It's gone because they're trying to, Lisa said before, you know, break you down to build you up. So it was really tough, but I, you know, through all of that, I think having overcome that and realizing, because they also said, you're going to, you're such a loser airman in my face. You're never going to graduate. You're going to be, you know, here, you're not even going to be able to work at McDonald's. (laughs) And I thought, you know, I know you're lying. This is totally a head game. So I just, in my mind, I knew that I was going to make it. And I think that's, that was the key. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't, you know, it built me, gave me so much strength, and I learned so much from that. There are people listening who never would think to join the military, and they hear you uh, recount what boot camp was like, this, uh, you know, tearing you down, then to build you up, and they'd say, well, why would you want to do that? What would you tell them? You know, I would say I trusted my dad, you know. I mean, <laughs> good or bad, I don't know. Everyone's <laughs> laughing. <laughs> um, I li- also lived as a military before you know, child, you know, growing up. So I kind of had an idea, I guess. It didn't seem scary to me. And I knew that I was, I would make it. I just had this confidence and everyone supporting me. So it was worth it to me because I personally wanted to travel all over the world, which I did, and, you know, gain an education while I was in there, an experience that says that I will never, I would have never experienced if I had not joined. So that would be my answer. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathantral. We're talking about uh, women veterans um, and how the service has changed, uh, especially over the last few years with the opening of all combat jobs to women who qualify. I want to take a a quick call now. Elizabeth's calling from Hartford. Elizabeth, you're on the show. Oh, it doesn't look like Elizabeth is there. Um, So why don't we turn to our next guest to find out a little bit more about what prompted this policy change within the Pentagon. Um, Right now on the phone with us is Matthew Cox, associate editor and defense reporter for Military.com. Matthew, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So uh, give us a little background for those of us who may not be following over the last few years, I think since 2013, when um, the, the Pentagon started to look into whether to open all combat jobs to women. What prompted that? Well, um, Secretary of Defense, then Secretary of Defense, uh, Liam Panetta, you know, he decided to do the directive. And I, I, what I believe is, is, and many believe is, is because of a lot of the sacrifices that women had made during, uh, you know, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, there were no really clear front lines. So women were often finding themselves uh, you know, in ambushes, in firefights, and, uh, you know, I think they performed very well. So, uh, you know, he 
said it was time. So then he told the services, you know, start getting your, you know, start getting your plans ready. And, you know, I want this done, you know, um, by, uh, you know, December, uh, by, by um, January 1, 2016. And then we heard um, Defense Secretary Ash Carter, um, I think last December, saying again that this is something that needs to happen uh, because women are half the population. Um, so what was the response within each branch? I understand it was a little bit different if you compare the Marine Corps to the U.S. Army. Oh, are you talking about, like, their plans? Yes, once they, they decided that sure. it was time to roll out the... the I mean, you know, like all the services have like been doing, making their plans. The Marine Corps, they were really first to take action, you know, before everybody. And they had women go through uh, their infantry officer basic course, um, which is a very challenging course, very tough course. Um, they didn't have any luck with that. And, you know, no women passed. They did have a handful of female Marines go through the enlisted um, um, infantry office or, or the enlisted infantry course, and they did graduate. Um, but it hasn't been as successful in the Marine Corps. Uh, the Army, they've had seemed to have the most progress in this. They have done spent a lot of time preparing uh, female volunteers. It started really with uh, U.S. Army Ranger School. They were going to allow um, females to go through. If, if, uh, Ranger School is a 62-day, very grueling uh, infantry leadership course, um, and it's there's very little food, little, little sleep. Um, they want to stress the students out and to make it seem like combat as much as possible. And they're they're put into small units, and they have to each of them have to take turns leading patrols, ambushes, things like that, um, and also performing a variety of skills. Um, so. But they spent a lot of time preparing them, going through pre-ranger courses, just like the men get, though. You know, the men get the same thing. So, you know, there was, there was, they had some success. In, in August, uh, they had two, the first two female um, uh, ranger school graduates, and uh, they, um, you know, they didn't, they didn't pass the first time. I mean, they, they failed, I, I think, at least two or three times. They, just like the men, though, in that course, they offered them a chance because since they did well, look, you two have done well. There was like, there was a lot more, um, there was several that had started. Uh, there was two that really distinguished themselves. And, well, you can recycle if you want, which is starting back the same day or, you know, day one. Um, and they took it. So um, they, they kind of stuck it out. And, and then they had a third who was the same situation and had recycled a couple times. Um, a couple months later. Um, so it seems like the Army has done a little better, a little more successful in setting uh, females up for success. In, in uh, just this past uh, October, there were 10 uh, female lieutenants that graduated infantry, uh, um, uh, the basic, I'm sorry, excuse me, one second, it's infantry basic officer leadership course. That's a that's a step towards coming an infantry platoon leader. Um, in December, there was an, the there was about 13 females that graduated the armor uh, you know, version of that. So they would be you know a step towards coming tank platoon leaders. Um, so they're not they're not in units yet, but they are progressing along in the training. 
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking with Matthew Cox, associate editor and defense reporter for Military.com. So again, this rule change happened under the Obama administration. Uh, Matthew, what's the sense in the military community about whether uh, President-elect Trump will re- reverse the Pentagon's decision on, on offering up combat jobs to all women? You know, no one knows that answer. I mean, we're all kind of waiting to see. Uh, you know, there are a lot of there are a lot of my readers out there that that say, you know, well, this never should have happened uh, in the first place, and um, they would like to see it reversed. Um, but I think there's a lot of people out there that are very interested in this. Whenever I write a story on these, uh, especially you know the Ranger School um, stories. They were the most popular on our website. And there, there were a lot of negative comments, but there were also a lot of, like, we'll give him a chance. So um, no one really knows. He can, he's free to do it. Um, but, uh, you know, we'll just we'll have to wait and see. I mean, he, he did – he has shown that he's not – I don't know. I don't, I don't know. He's shown he's not very supportive of, you know, females in the military. I mean, he did a tweet a couple of years ago um, and talking about uh, – you know that there's like 26 26,000 reported sexual assaults in the military only 238 convictions what did these geniuses think to you know putting you know men and women together mm-hmm. um I, you know i don't i guess you can look at that a lot of different ways but i mean men and women have been serving together for a long long time mm-hmm. And that also speaks to the question of of problems within the military justice system and how these cases um, are reported and uh, prosecuted. Um, But I wanted to ask you, um, Matthew, if um, this policy were to be reversed under President-elect Trump, how easy would that be? What would the process look like? Do we know? You know, I mean, it's Secretary of Defense, you know, made the decision, you know, to open up all jobs to the to female uh, service members. He did it with a stroke of a pen, and I guess on the directive of the president. So another directive can be done to reverse it. Tell us a little bit more about Marine General, retired Marine General uh, James Mattis, who is uh, President-elect Trump's pick to be defense secretary. Um, you know, do we know much about his background in terms of what he thinks about gender integration? Um, I mean, we know a little bit. We know about some of the statements that he said, uh, he he has been. I think he's skeptical. Um, he ha- even though you know there were many many Marines, uh, female Marines in the Marine Corps, and every Marine is a, you know a rifleman. Um, he's questioned publicly whether women are suited for what he called quote intimate killing uh, in close quarters. Um, it, you know that. <laughs> So, I mean, I, I think that kind of speaks to, he. I think he's from the old school, the old breed where, you know, this is for men and men only. But um, it will be interesting to see the two of them together. I, I would, you know, like to point out um, that, you know, as far as his skepticism goes, I mean, I, you know, I'd mentioned before about women distinguishing some, themselves in combat. I mean, in, in 2005, it was a, a, a Sergeant Leanne Hester. She was a military uh police officer, police woman um, and from the Kentucky National Guard. And uh, she was awarded the Silver Star you know, for a march uh, action in Iraq. She was in an armored column um, or a column of vehicles and uh, it came under ambush. She dismounted. Uh, she, she was in a firefight. She and another soldier 
uh, got into a trench line where our enemy insurgents were, and she, you know, cleared the trench line and killed several Iraqis. So, I mean, that that's pretty intimate. Again, Matthew Cox is an associate editor and defense reporter for Military.com. Before we let you go, Matthew, I did want to ask you, um, what about the ban on gay men and lesbians serving openly in the military? Uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed under, again, the Obama administration. Um, any sense of what would happen under President-elect Trump? Like I said, I mean, no one really knows with... with uh, I'm trying until, to pin you uh, down, you know, Matthew. <laughs> you know, yeah, I know you are. And it's like, you know, we're all very interested in knowing this. But, you know, he's made, he's made a lot of statements. Um, but he's already backed off on a few of them. So we're all going to be watching all of these things with great interest. I want to thank Matthew Cox uh, again from Military.com. You can read his stories and his staff at Military.com. Matthew, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. I wanted to turn back to the, the women veterans uh, in the studio with me. Uh, Lisa Ducharme, a longtime uh, uh, service in the U.S. Air Force, retired uh, from there. Um, we heard uh, Matthew say that you know, a lot of his readers were like, this should never have happened, um, with the idea of allowing all combat jobs to be open to women, uh, integrating them um, in the, the military equally um, if they qualify. Uh, when you hear that mentality that still exists, it's not just in people that are within the military community. They're probably civilians out there. They're like, well, why would you, why would women be doing this job? What are your thoughts? Well, I actually think that people in 20 years are going to still be saying the same thing. Um, One of the bigger challenges that we will always run through is that people don't always think and understand the military. We are a completely different culture within itself. And as you know, this just here, even with just two branches, you've noticed we're both different cultures, no matter how you look at it. So just because it opens up doesn't mean everybody's going to jump up and do it. You know, as he talked about, only two of the females uh, graduated from the, women, the, from the ranger school. However, let's look at how many men did not graduate from ranger school. I mean, let's just be a little bit realistic with numbers. You can throw out the numbers, but let's be a little bit more realistic. So, yes, is it going to make people uncomfortable? Get over it. That's what life is all about. Um, in reality, it's going to happen. And... I would be hard-pressed to think either one of them, once they get the reports, neither one of them, at the time that they made the comments that they made, were privy to the reports that were done. Wait until they get the reports that were done. And as far as the concept of rape in the military, let's face it, you've got gays and lesbians out in the military. You're going to say you can't put gays and lesbians out in combat zones? Not going to happen either, by the way. And men as well as women both get raped from either either sex. So just know it happens regardless. And we'll be talking about that um, after the break. I want to take a quick call. Uh, Donna's been holding from Windsor. Donna, you're on the show. Okay. Hi. I was um, listening earlier, and the woman that was deployed overseas said that she was walking with the men to make sure they didn't do things. And that jumped out at me. And I'm thinking that would be, you know, negative things regarding women or destruction of property or anything negative that might they shouldn't be doing. So I'd like you to elaborate on that, please. So you want to learn a little bit more about um, um, Emily Lugo's job when she served um, as a Marine in Afghanistan. Um, Emily, could you tell her a little bit more about um, your job when you were over there? Yes. So I was a maintenance data analyst, so I um, did record keeping for the aircraft. That was my main job. But when we had things like gate guard duty or, you know, like camera duty, things like that, um, one of the jobs was walking the men who were doing repairs on something um, in our gate 
where the you know where we kept the aircrafts we would just have to walk um walk with them and watch them to you know make sure they didn't do anything it wasn't anything in regards to you know touching women it was in regards to you know property and things like that this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking to three women veterans in Connecticut about the U.S. military, including a policy change that opens up all combat jobs to women if they qualify. Now, coming up, we're going to hear more from them, get their perspective on the challenges they faced, not only in the service, but back in the civilian world. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, one of New England's most storied churches, United Congregational Church in Bridgeport, will soon be transformed into a mosque. On the next Where We Live, we learn the story behind the Bridgeport Islamic Community Center's recent purchase rather, of the old UCC building and the strong interfaith partnership that made it possible. That's tomorrow. Now, today we're talking to women veterans about changes in the military under President Obama's administration and what direction it may take under President-elect Donald Trump. Now, this conversation comes at a time when the percentage of women in the military is increasing every year, and the total population of women veterans is increasing, even as the overall veteran population is shrinking. That's according to SWAN, the Service Women Action Network. In studio with me are three women veterans, Emily Lugo, a U.S. Marine Corps veteran, and Deborah Denhard and Lisa Ducharme both veterans of the U.S. Air Force. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wmpr.org. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. I want to take a couple of calls. Uh, Michael is calling from Meriden. Michael, you're on the show. Hi. Um, I just wanted to comment about uh, women in the military, um, and it kind of reminded me of the Vikings, actually, because the Vikings uh, employed women in their military quite often, and they're very fearsome. And they were actually very revered, too, because the women were able to give life as well as death. And it was, it was a really revered thing in the Viking culture for women to be a part of those, uh, those types of military actions. And I think, it's, I think it's perfectly fine and great for women to be in the U.S. military. Um, if, if nothing else, it doubles your, your force. So you have a bigger pool of soldiers to pick from, different skill sets. I, I think it's just great. So I just wanted to comment on that. Thank you very much for your call. I want to take another one, another Michael calling from Tolland. Mike, you're on the show. How are you today? I'm well. How are you? Good, good. I, uh, my comment, I'm, I'm just driving around taking uh, some errands today, and I was listening to the show. And back in the 80s, I was an Air Force instructor pilot. And I, uh, I had the honor to, to work with you know several females in, in, a, in a replacement unit. And then in a squadron, I had... I had females as my co-pilot navigators and boom operators, and all I can say is they, they were, they, you know, given the chance and the proper training, they maintained the highest standards possible for the military, and I think it's just long overdue. We have dragged our feet on this, and we're just not using our resources properly. Well, Michael, thank you um, for your comment. I'll turn to the uh, Air Force veterans in studio with me. Uh, first, Deborah Dunhart. Yes, I, I thank you, Michael. Awesome. Yes. I have a friend also also who was a pilot um, in the she's a woman um, in the military and uh, you know I don't think our resources are really you know realized as women I mean we have we multitask we're we're strong individuals and you know there's a there's a strength within us I think that is just naturally there um, personally I think that as a woman but um, so 
I think the military is smart to draw from those resources. And again, you have four-star generals who are making huge decisions for our country and positions all, you know, high in the White House. So why not use this as, you know, military resources? Because we have a lot to offer. Lisa Duchamp. Thank you both. Michaels, you go. Um, I wholeheartedly agree with everything that you said. So let's talk a little bit about some of the challenges. So um, we've been hearing about the the high rate of sexual assaults in the military over the last several years because now we're seeing um, more attention to the issue. Uh, Maybe some service members feel comfortable reporting it, maybe not before. Can we talk about that issue, um, what you experienced, what you may know other colleagues in the service, and if you feel like there's been a sea change in how the military responds to it? Deborah? You know, I don't have any experience as far as like personal friends or, you know, that just didn't seem to be my experience while I was in the military. Um, But I think if I were to experience that, I would say, you know, that the justice system that's in place right now should definitely, you know, be supporting the women and giving them um, a safe, you know, place for them to voice if something does happen, you know, and not um, be critical of them if they're in that situation, like it's their fault. You know, we kind of see that trend sometimes in situations. Well, you know, you as a woman, women sometimes think it's their problem, their fault. They should have done something differently. And I think that mindset needs to just not be there. You can't assume that. So I think, you know, a strong legal support system for them, that they know I can go here and I'm, I'm going to be okay. I'm not going to be criticized you know, for going and and voicing that, you know, this is a problem and this is what happened to me. Lisa Ducharme. So the challenge that we have in the military, and I don't know this by personal experience. Um, However, I do know it by all the research that I did because I actually did a paper on it because I was perplexed when a friend of mine told me she was sexually assaulted um, many, many, many moons ago. And I didn't understand the process at the time, but I've noticed over time it has changed. And one of the problems that we have in our military service, and it doesn't matter what branch you are, and it doesn't matter whether you're male or female, is that we give you two options when you're sexually assaulted. Your first is to go ahead and report it, and nothing gets done. The second is to report it and make it public. Now, if nothing gets done, they, do, they will take the DNA. They will do the report. However, it is kept secret, and not always is either person removed from that particular position. And it doesn't matter whether it's in combat, overseas, or within the United States. So we run into that kind of problem. And I think that in the military, especially when you are used to following instructions, now not so much in the Air Force, although the Air Force, you know, we do follow instructions. But in the Air Force, we are less likely to, our jobs are less likely to be impacted if we screw up. Whereas in the Marines, you will follow the orders exactly as you're told to do it because there are consequences. People will die. That's just depending on the career field that you're in. Personnel, nobody's going to die if I disobey an order. You may not appreciate me during pay period, but nobody's going to die. So I think that that is a lot of our dilemma when it comes to the military is that we give you two options, and we shouldn't. It should be just like the civilian community. We have the UCMJ, which is the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which is the swiftest justice system in the world. However, we don't utilize it because 
of the circumstances and the type of environment that the military has. Let me ask you quickly, there have been calls that um, when something like this happens, that it's not prosecutors within the military justice system, that there should be uh, independent uh, prosecutors that handle sexual assault cases. Do you agree with that, taking that out of the the service, and why not? No. I actually don't agree with taking out the military because the military moves faster than the civilian world. I don't care who you are. In the civilian world, no disrespect to any civilian lawyers. (laughs) You guys do not need to call. Um, But the military moves swiftly when they move. And if you take it out of the military chain and put it into the civilian's hands, you're going to end up just muddying the waters. We do have something currently going on right now, and I'm anticipating it's going to pass if it hasn't already passed, where women will not report sexual assault if they're active-duty military because they are afraid of what's going to happen. However... The military and the VA is working on a policy where an active military person can actually go to the VA if they've been sexually assaulted while on active duty. And there's a special number and a special code um, that's currently being worked out. And I don't have the information on it, but it is being worked out, which I think will make a huge difference for women who have been sexually assaulted who don't want to come across because they're afraid of losing their military career. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, um, speaking with uh, three women veterans uh, about their service. I wanted to shift now to what life was like for you when you um, retired or separated um, from the service. I'll turn back to uh, the Marine in the room, um, Emily Lugo. Uh, you served four years in the U.S. Marine Corps, also deployed uh, to Afghanistan. When you um, separated from the service, what was it like? Did you have trouble translating um, the skills and job that you did in the service to the civilian world? Um, I think it was difficult just transitioning back to a civilian because, you know, you're just so caught up in this military mindset. You can't do the same things that you did in the military as a civilian. And um, I was I was working at UConn. I was a, um, a peer mentor for the incoming freshmen. And, you know, I found myself screaming at them. And, you know, I was telling I was getting told, like, you can't do that. They're not you know, they're not Marines. <laughs> so as far as that, that was difficult. But I think um, the hardest thing was, you know, trying to find resources to, you know, you know, talk to other Marines or any other military personnel, just because you kind of have that familiarity with them that you don't have with civilians and civilians don't really understand everything that you've been through, as opposed to veterans, you know, that you can have that connection with. I referenced uh, SWAN earlier. That's uh, the Service Women Action Network, an advocacy group um, for uh, women uh, veterans. And they released its first survey of women on active duty, also women who've retired or left the service. And they found that, quote, service women and women veterans are proud of their service and would recommend the military to other women. But they view gender bias as a major obstacle to success and feel underappreciated by society. Do you agree with that statement, Deborah? I, I definitely think there's some gender bias, absolutely. And I think that's our culture. Um, you know, men tend to have, get paid more. You know, we know the statistics, you know, there are statistics out there on salaries, things like that. So I absolutely think that um, there's some gender bias there. And how did you, um, you know, deal with that if you experienced it or even after you left the service in terms of translating the work that you did within the Air Force to your civilian job? You know, I actually switched careers. So I was in the medical specialist, you know, medic career field. And while there, I worked with doctors, nurses. So it was, you know, very mixed, you know. 
Um, but then I decided, you know, I'm going to switch to marketing communications. So I did that and found, a, you know, director of marketing positions, um, proved myself, you know, worked harder, you know, fought harder <laughs> um, for those positions. So I just kind of made my way. I knew there was going to be ob there were obstacles and I did face those. But I just said, you know what, I know they're there. So I'm going to find a way through them. Also, that SWAN survey, um, again, surveyed women veterans who've left the service. And the top three personal challenges that uh, women surveyed uh, said that one was uh, mental health, two, connecting to a community of fellow women veterans. So we heard from Emily Lugo just a few minutes ago that just you know being able to feel like you're connected to other people from the same background. And three was financial stability. Uh, Lisa, what are the resources out there for women veterans? Do they know that they're out there? Actually, they don't know they're out there. And that was... And that's one of the biggest challenges. So we actually have a Center for Women Veterans in D.C. And if you ever get a chance to listen uh, to Betty Mosley-Brown, she is a phenomenal speaker. She is actually the associate director of the VA Center, and she goes out to different events. So every year, usually around Veterans Day, sometimes earlier in the summer, you will find there are women veteran events going on. Um, we also have, and the Women's Vet Center has a call center. So if you want to know whether or not you're entitled to any benefits or if you want to know about benefits that you may not necessarily know of, they actually have a call center, and it's 1-855-VA-WOMEN-VETS. But that is kind of important if you can find out. They now have chat lines out there, by the way, on the Women's um, Vet Center. It's hard to find the resources, even myself as a personnelist, which background for people don't know is HR, human resources. You know, it's hard to find what's available. There are so many resources that unless you can actually pick and choose and understand where to go, at UConn, you guys have a veteran service director as well as a vet center. You should reach out to them. If you are at any college, you all have veteran service people who will process your VA benefits, they actually have an array of veteran benefits for you. There are veteran service officers that also have a variety of different uh, benefits that are available. The VA has this really, really great training, and it's called Moving Forward. And there's a really cool app to go along with it in case you don't want to use the computer. But it's veterantraining.va.gov. And that is really cool because it not only has managing stress, balancing school and family, relationships, it has a whole slew of training out there for you. Now, it's brand new. I've only, I only saw it about a year ago, but I recommend it to some of my students that I think at that time they're ready for it. So the resources are out there. It's just knowing them. The women who recently separated from the military and the veterans who recently separate, they're being told more and more what benefits are out there. It's the older veterans who don't have a clue what they're entitled to. We have so many people right now who are eligible for the post-9-11 GI Bill, which pays your tuition and fees. It gives you a stipend and pays book money. They do not even know that they're entitled to it because it didn't come out until 2009. So anybody who separated prior to 2009 Unless they were lucky like me and, and had resources available to them that told them about it, they would not even know that they're eligible for the post-9-11 GI Bill. We'll try to put some of those links on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Just a couple of minutes. Um, any advice uh, from each of you to women who may be listening who are thinking about joining the military? Emily? I say go for it. You know, there's so many benefits, and you, you meet amazing people, and then, of course, you meet people you don't like, but, <laughs> you know, 
they're your family. I literally have a second family back in California, and I'm going to go visit them again. And I, like I said, I wouldn't change the experience that I had for the world, and I'm so happy I did it, and I don't even know what else to say. But are, are I say go for it. Are people surprised when you tell them that you're a Marine? Absolutely. I'm four foot ten, so everyone's like, oh, my God, you're so small. How would you do it? So, so you're, uh, you're a role model for all of us. Uh, Deborah, final thoughts? Absolutely. Go for it. You know, do it. You can do it. You can make it. Even you can do exactly what the guys can do. So you've got it. You mentioned earlier that you weren't sure fathers should recommend to their daughters to join the military. Do you have children? I do. I have two daughters myself. Absolutely. Would you tell them to join? You know, I would. My my oldest daughter wanted to actually join the military to be a doctor. And final thoughts from Lisa. I think you should go for it. My son actually recently retired from the Army, so I am all about the military, over 200 years of military background here. So um, I will tell you, I am a big advocate for the military. If nothing else, it's going to get you training, and it's going to give you a little bit of stability, whether you go full active duty, whether you go guard, whether you go reserves. Pick a branch and go. I want to thank our guests in studio again. Emily Lugo, U.S. Marine Corps veteran, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you. Also, Deborah Denhart, a U.S. Air Force veteran. And Lisa Ducharme, I said earlier we're all Connecticut uh, women, but you're from Massachusetts. I don't want to get, <laughs> I don't want to get you mad at me, Lisa. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. WMPR's executive producer is Katie Tolarski. Again, you can check out WMPR.org slash where we live for more about the show. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening today. <laughs>